Hi, this is Brennan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here for the 10th episode of the Horror Express with Joel and Adam, and today we're going to be talking about The Howling, a 1981 film directed by Joe Dante, and uh, this is something of a classic. It sort of came out in the year of werewolf movies, I think, um, and we're going to talk about the movie, but before we do, I just wanted to give Joel a moment to talk about a game that he has up on drive through and then we'll resume our discussion of The Howling. So, Joel, why don't you fill people in on what you got there? Yeah, I always get the plug out of the way first. Well, it's so it's it's about. related. It's related once people hear the hear everything. Um, Is it really related? Okay, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dick. Um, I'm not gonna. It, sure, it's it's plenty related. It's great. Anyway, uh, so I wrote a quick start for Lone Wolf Fist, much like I did for uh, uh, All Above Heaven. Uh, it's available on Drive Therapy. It's called Blood from God's Eye. It's uh, got pre-gen characters. It's got somewhat more streamlined and complete rules than the current uh, playtest document, which is also available online on a DriveThruRPG. They are free downloads. You can give me money if you really must, but I insist that you don't and just take the thing and enjoy it. So, um, so yeah. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna counter what Joel just said and say give him money. Uh, if you like the <laughs> stuff Joel says in the podcast, and you want him to appear here more, give him money. I think it'll be helpful and beneficial for everybody. Um, it will definitely so, inspire me to write faster. Yeah. So, so um, and also it's connected because of the wolf in the title. That was what I was getting at. Was the you know lone wolf and we're doing a werewolf. Uh, movie. Okay. No. So. All right. All right. I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> it's a little bit like how. In America, Werewolf in London, they, they had all the songs with Moon in the title. Do you know what I mean? That's the, the connective tissue there. Um, so so, anyways, we're talking about The Howling, which came out in 1981. And I, I, I think, I again, I, I, I want to get Joel's reaction because I believe this was Joel's first time seeing it. And, and, and as always, me and Adam being the old men in the room, you know, <laughs> we've seen a lot of these movies before. So I'm curious what Joel's reaction is going to be to this film. Ooh, okay, so... I'm never really sure what to say as far as reaction. I did like this movie uh, in terms of just visceral enjoyment. It's got a really quick uh, pace. It's only, I want to say it's only 90 minutes. It that's right. Really comes that's right. Quick. Uh, it's, uh, it's really visceral and intense. Uh, the special effects are interesting and slightly uneven, but overall, I think, effective. Um, I'm, some of the casting choices are inspired. I'm sure we'll get into that. Mm-hmm. And uh, highly entertaining. And, um, yeah, it's it's... It's fast and it's pulpy and it's bloody and it's it's surprisingly seventies, uh, which I wasn't anticipating. It actually, you know what? It actually kind of reminded me of a, a Taxi Driver, the way it was directed. Yeah. It's got that yeah. sort of same kind of stylish. And again, you saw that a lot in the seventies. That's sort of what what they call, I think, the French style, where like they have uh, like quick cuts and strange angles and stuff like that. It makes it very viewable. And it's gritty. Um, it's gritty like Taxi Driver, too. It's got that. And, it and, is gritty. And it's, and it's dealing, especially in the opening, and I guess I'll just give people the overview. It's, it starts out really with a serial killer plot. And, it, I mean, it, it feels like it's something out of a Scorsese movie also because you're, it's, it's also urban at the beginning, and it's a city environment. And this reporter goes to meet this serial killer in a porn booth, and they're... We'll discuss the scene more later, but, uh, you know, she's a, she's assaulted or attacked by the werewolf and she's traumatized. The serial killer turns out later in the movie we discover for sure is a werewolf, but it's only hinted at in the opening scene. It's not it's not confirmed. I'll put it that way. And in the wake of that, she goes on a retreat uh, at the suggestion of a, uh, a doctor named George Wagner, who's a sort of talking head pop psychologist. He's sort of like the, you know, 
a, a, a more wolfish uh, Dr. Phil type character. She goes on retreat uh, with her husband and there the retreat is filled with people who are actually werewolves and she, you know, just, you know, basically that's where the movie really starts. And it's, it's, it's not so much uh, a straight plot as it is just kind of an, you know, a setup for discovering who's a werewolf and what's going on and all these things. So, um, so I don't know if that's a accurate overview or not. You guys can uh, give any contrarian points if you think I skipped anything, but no, no, I, I would like to point out that like the movie, it's a little messy and that's yeah. a good reflection of what actually happens in this film. Yeah. And I should say it's got kind of a lighter tone too. like, there is comedy in this movie. There is kind of like a, um, I don't know. There's, there, there's a certain amount of goofiness in the film. Not as much as like an American Werewolf in London, but there is that still present there, especially in some of the scenes uh, involving, uh, you know, some of the actors that you had mentioned as uh, uh, being inspired choices. Um, so, so yeah. So Adam, what did you think of this movie? Yeah, I I definitely agree. It's a, it's a messy movie, but it's it's really enjoyable. But it's got like all these little kind of pieces on it that you feel like might be going more somewhere that don't. But overall, the whole thing just works. And I mean, as far as you know, it's it's as far as it being kind of goofy, it, it's a it's a Joe Dante film who did is most famous for the Gremlins movies. Yep. So you know that gives you a little bit of an idea it's like as joe dante goes he can go a lot goofier than yes yeah, yeah definitely definitely <laughs> so and it's not it's not super of... goofy it's just there it's i mean yeah. it starts out really serious and then there are just yeah you know exactly it's 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 got some strange tonal leaps but it, i don't know i i really like it i have things that i can nitpick about it and i probably will as we move forward but yeah it's just a it's just a brisk enjoyable werewolf movie so and, uh, and it's got some just very creative effects. It's like the, uh, but yeah, I don't know. Um, so what would you think about the whole thing here, Brandon? I mean, no, I I like it. I mean, I, I obviously. When did you first see it? Because I'm curious when. Like, did you Me? see it in the theater or did you see it in video after? It came no, out? I saw it on video. I saw it in the like mid '80s, I would say, okay. and I have not seen it since. So okay. the the '70s-ness of it really struck me too just from the standpoint that i didn't notice how 70s it was because you know the mid 80s you were still barely out of the 70s in the first place so it it didn't it just it was just yeah that was just normal yeah but, I, uh, I i saw it in the mid 80s on video too at, at a friend's house during a sleepover and that and then i probably i might have seen it once again after that and then i don't think i watched it until maybe 2006 or so you know sometime mm -hmm. much later and 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 again there was only one scene that i even remembered from the movie at that point and and then you know and then this was the first time i've seen it since then so uh yeah. you know um and i have to say you know i don't think i forgot a lot of the movie between then and now it's a pretty you know there's, there's not much to forget do you know what i mean like the basic elements are are uh yeah are are are, are sort of there but I, I, I like the film. I think that it does a few things well. One of the things that I really like about it is how uncomfortable it makes you with the werewolves. But at first, it makes you very comfortable with them. Do you know what I mean? Like, it kind they kind of lure you in. Like, like I think the scene that encapsulates it for me is the, the, the sex transformation scene that, uh, you know, that everybody kind of knows about. The campfire scene. Where yeah. the that woman Marsha seduces uh, what's the main character's name Karen White's husband, uh, 
I'm not sure what his name is. Is it Bill? Was that his name? Uh, Bill. Yeah. Bill's I kept yeah. calling him Mustache Jack because of that very '70s mustache. Yeah, he's got he's got the same. He kind of looks like Chuck Norris. He's a, he's like he's, if, also, he's a cross he between Chuck Norris. I'm sorry. He's consistently shirtless in this movie. And yeah, he's they, very very '70s hairy. Which which is it? Which 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 always I never that always kind of made it hard for me to buy the whole he doesn't eat meat thing because if you're a vegetarian at that time like now. You meet plenty of vegetarians that, you know, supplement the protein fine. But I just feel like yeah, back then, vegetarians slow, but... were known for not being as, as built as this guy was. Um, but maybe, maybe I'm just misinformed about it. I don't know. Uh, but but anyways, that scene, it starts out as like a sexy scene where like, you know, she seduces them. They start having sex. But then they start turning into werewolves. And it's like horrifying and very ugly and, and like the opposite of what you would, you know, it's the opposite of what you would find physically appealing. Do you know what I mean? You just, it, it, it becomes two dogs having sex. And that, there's something like, like very visceral and horrifying about it, but there's also something very interesting about how, you know, it's, it's, it's just a good use of werewolf because that's sort of, it, it, it encapsulates the whole transformation of you go from being this, you know, you know this human being that is charming and convincing to you know something much more terrible um and it's so and, and normally oh, yeah. it's not yeah. done in that way i mean i mean I, I don't i feel like this must be the first movie that did this i could be wrong but i don't remember there being other werewolf movies prior that that, that like explore the the sexual angle yeah. of the wolf and they you're right in that they don't make the werewolves very physically appealing I, i'm certain that People nowadays, because we're kind of like we're spoiled by Twilight werewolves, where they're all gorgeous shirtless hunks. Like th that's not these werewolves. These things are long and greasy and hairy and awful looking. Like they're really grotesque, and so you don't want to see these things nail. Uh, and I, you're right, because that that scene gets into your psychology in a very unsettling way because it is appealing at first. You have two attractive people that are, you know, getting into passionately making love. Then their skin starts to ripple and roil and yeah. hair just starts appearing everywhere. And then at the end, they're these howling monster animals. Uh, and it's just a, like, it's a totally different feeling at the end than at the beginning of that scene. And it's almost like a metaphor for the kind of trauma that we see earlier in the movie too. This movie has a lot of, like, uh, it says a lot about trauma. It's very meditative about, like, the nature of, like, the psyche whenever it goes through something really horrific. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I, I like I like that scene quite a bit, um, mostly because of the impact. It's it's just fascinating. Well, that, that was the scene that I remembered. And, that I mean, I was, I mean, as a kid, I remember, you know, at first being like, ooh, boobies. And then, like, oh, my God, what's oh, yeah. going on? Because it's like, this that is not. That was my reaction today, yeah. man, yeah. when I watched it. I was like, yeah, <laughs> boobs. And I was like, oh, no. So it's a way I didn't want it to go, but, but anything like that, that like, so that scene's always stuck with me and I feel like, okay, that, that's a very effective scene. And also it, it walks a very fine line because they try to do the same thing in part two, but they like up the ante considerably and it's beyond goofy. Like the, the, you know, the, 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 there's a, there's like a parallel scene. There's actually several parallel scenes to this one in part two and none of them work there. They only work on a schlocky level of this uh, is terrible be, movie making 101 sounds like that might be a next month thing to do howling too then because that's on prime too yeah yeah <laughs> let's watch let's watch all eight of them let's just do the whole series 
there's, there's there's probably only so much value you can extract from uh from the howling but you know if we do that we have to do the eight wolves of christmas and yeah. we'll just do that do it that way we'll do it yeah we'll christmas come up holiday. yeah we'll, we'll do some kind of we'll, we'll find a way to make it happen i suppose um but but yeah so so and also like one of the and again i guess we could debate whether he is a werewolf because we never get actual confirmation but dr george wagner you know he's one he's one of the first werewolves that we see aside from um what's his name uh quist the the serial killer um, oh uh, yeah eddie is what they call eddie, him. eddie quist eddie quist uh and he's this charming guy that's a lot he, and again, he, he he's interesting on a number of levels because i like how horror movies tend to have characters like this the sort of knowledgeable professorial type figure like you have um uh, Dr. Loomis in Halloween, and we had in um, uh, oh, in, in Videodrome. What was the doc? The, 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 the oh talk- yeah, Doctor yeah. Doctor yeah. Oblivion. Richard yeah, Oblivion. yeah, yeah, yeah. Doctor Oblivion. And they're kind of um, they're in the Van Helsing mold because Van Helsing was was that in Dracula. So yeah, I think and, that that's an archetypical thing and, from there. And they're good at explaining like the themes and the central points of the movie and kind of clarifying what the universe is all about and all these things. So they they're good for that. But he's a very charming. Uh, you know, and I'll, I'll avoid the, the the word avuncular because you guys always tag me for that. But he's a very charming, <laughs> you know, charismatic, uh, you know, friendly kind of, uh, I, I don't know, I would say progressive doctor is how they present him initially. And, oh, I see Adam is already disagreeing with me. So I'm oh, oh, no, I just, I, I was going to say, oddly, I think it's because we've been watching so many Cronenberg movies. Now I watched The Brood on mm. my own recently, and I've just... <laughs> Immediately, just as soon as this, you know, this this psychiatrist type gets up and is like giving a speech on television, it just it just set off my Cronenberg alarm. You know, I'm just like ah, ah, Cronenberg alert. I tell, so yeah, I, I mean, I like I said, you're you may be closer to what the average viewer is thinking, but I just I was just having having a different reaction because that was well, thing too. I mean, it's the time period too. It is the same time period as all those early Cronenberg films yeah. and yeah. the whole seventies pop psychology thing. I mean, it, it's cause that's the thing with this movie. It's not when we say it's seventies, it's not just seventies in the sense that, Ooh, look at that hairstyle and look at yeah. those cars. It's just the themes and everything are just so no, heavily. And I want to, I want to get into that next. Actually, all I was trying to say though, is that he's, he's <laughs> not, he's not, he's about. not like, a, um, He's not like the Marsha character where you meet her and you're like, ooh, she's a bad woman. You know it right away. Do you know what I mean? Whereas you meet yeah. him and you're like, you know, there's so, you know, you can see how the characters are lulled into a sense of security with him. Um, yeah. You know, he's like, oh, he yeah. wants to be your friend and he wants to help you. But the thing that's cool about him, the thing that's cool about the whole setup and how it sort of ties to the 70s is they're really drawing on this whole like the, the, the colony is is this thing that this doctor has set up that's supposedly a retreat where they have seminars and lectures and they have group therapy and various things for people that have whatever psychological issues. And his main thesis as a doctor seems to be about repression and how repression leads to all kinds of psychological problems. So I think the it's sort of presented like the colony is this place where you go and you can express things more freely and maybe get some of those, you know, cathartically get rid of some of those things in order to, to be a more stable person. It turns out it's not that, but on the, that's sort of how it's presented. But what that plays into is this idea of what I would call like the residual hippie culture 
that we had around us <laughs> in the early yep. 80s. And so it's yep. a very believable setting where it's like you go there and all the weirdness that is chalked, that, that basically is because they're werewolves, you can chalk up to them just being a bunch of hippies or being a bunch of, you know, free thinking radicals of some kind. Um, and I think that also yeah. ties in with the serial killer thing. Cause all that, and, and the Manson family yes. even gets mentioned. All that stuff yeah. is bound up in like the lore of the seventies. I think, do you know what I mean? That, that, mm-hmm. you know, that's the, a this, good way to put it. The, the lore of the seventies. Cause like that era and with that culture, that residual hippie culture with how you put it, like it did create a very particular kind of, uh, of lore around itself yeah. like a particular kind of movie got born out of that well like uh, the dirty harry films are like you know like you can totally see like that that opening sequence we were saying it could be scorsese's but it could have is easily been an eastwood film where he's mm-hmm. gonna you know he's gonna go murder the psychopath with his uh, uh <laughs> 357 magnum um but i i interrupted you so go go on I actually kind of love that scene where the cop shoots first, like directly and blindly yeah. into that booth she's in. He shoots to the door. He could have been shooting her for all he knew. I, I thought she got shot at one point. And that, it's like, no, she's fine. Physically, physically fine. Emotionally, that, that she's not so great. That scene is very weirdly edited, I think, because the cop rushes in, shoots, and then he has this like stunned, horrified look on his face before he even sees anything. And, mm-hmm. it, and it's, it's, it's just very weird, the sequence of events. What? The... You'll note that the younger guy shoots and the older guy doesn't like he doesn't freak out. He just kind of clucks his tongue like, oh, you idiot. And yeah, the younger yeah. guy's like, oh, what did I do? So let's talk about what happens in that booth. Was she actually so she goes in there supposedly to meet this serial killer named Eddie. And, you know, it's part of some kind of expose that they're doing and they're working with the police. But because the police have everything wired a certain way, and I guess the neon signs are interfering with their communication system, they the lose track of them. That makes any sense. But okay. I, I don't know either. I don't know enough about how <laughs> 70s and 80s police radios work. But I'll buy it. They, they offered me an explanation. That was, like, that was and why I was red light districts had so much neon, because it prevented yeah. the police from observing <laughs> what was going on in the neighborhood. Sure. Did you know that? That's definitely <laughs> the reason. So, But anyways, they go into the, the you know, she, she's, she meets him in this point booth he puts the coin in the machine they start watching this this porno movie and he's behind her and it's all done very sort of with the the way the lighting so that you can't see everything but he basically turns into a werewolf and there's some kind of exchange between him and her and it's not entirely clear what it was and i'm never certain is she was she raped by him was she just attacked by him because there's like a there's like a we get a glimpse of something that looks like an assault but it's not but but yeah, in the aftermath, yeah, and so I, there's, oh, go ahead. Okay, there's a lot of things in this movie that uh, that uh, that I I really don't understand. I have to say, but yeah, okay. I mean that is one of them. We're unclear on what what happens during that. But while we're on this scene too, the movie that's on too is just like really extreme. It's yeah. just like more extreme than anything that's actually in the movie we're watching. Yeah. Is this movie within the movie? It's like whoa. <laughs> Yeah, that's just just to What's, warn people that are going to watch this movie. It's like be yeah. ready. It's, and it's very intense. Well, I mean, there's there's full frontal nudity in this movie and things like that. And I honestly, like, if I'm stacking that scene and the content of the movie within a movie against the werewolf lovemaking <laughs> transformation, yeah. that is by far the more disturbing in my estimation. It's, so it's, it's I also, would say this movie. Yeah. 
I would say it's also appropriate that we don't that that is cloudy because the whole thing in the movie is she doesn't really remember what yeah, happened either. It works. Uh, yeah. Um, but it's interesting though. American Werewolf in London also has like a porno scene. Not it's like later in the movie, but he goes into a porno theater, and it's a more goofy porn. It's not this one's like kind of almost violent and disturbing, and that one's more comedic. There's all these interruptions that keep happening, if I remember. Um, but I, I've always wondered, like, like how aware were these two movies of each other? Because there's so many things that are similar between them. They both kind of have comedic tones to them. They both have the porno movie theater. They both have similar effects. And obviously, you know, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, the, 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 uh, uh, they go in different directions, but I, I feel like, I feel like there must have. It's like you know how you always get like the two the two asteroids destroying the Earth movie and the two yeah. you know the two flood movies and the two. I feel like was it one of these kind of things where the screenplay was known and somebody else was like, okay, we're gonna make sure we have these beats in there, or it was just you know it, porn yeah, movies I, were I really think, common in the seven seventies and eighties. So yeah, know. I honestly would be surprised if there was some interaction behind the people behind these movies while these were being made. Because I mean, I feel like I feel like they were kind of part of the same scene. Yeah. So it would almost be weird if they weren't talking to each other. And I mean, and, and uh, Rick Baker did cross the line, right? He went, he was yeah. working on this, and he starts. So I mean, you know, he's probably not that much of a snitch, but who knows if he, you know, <laughs> inadvertently, you know, mentioned a few things. Um, but but yeah, so. But the th- here's what I here's the the point about the '70s and the '80s though that I thought was interesting. You you always kind of have to compare this movie with America Werewolf in London, and I think the thing that really separates them is this is a lot more rooted in 1970s aesthetics and culture, and America Werewolf in London is is it almost kind of is like a step into the eighties. Do you know what I mean? Like a step forward. Like you watch these two movies and they look different. They feel different. Do you know what I mean? They're just like, like American werewolf in London feels like an eighties movie. And this, you know, like Joel was saying, he asked me if it was made in the seventies and it does kind of have that feel to it. Um, you know, a lot of early eighties movies do. It's not like, you know, it's not like you watch it and you mistake it for a seventies movie. Just that it, it, in the same way that like the, first couple of Friday the 13th kind of had a 70s vibe to them this one has a 70s vibe and American Werewolf in London feels much more like it was uh, it was the film that maybe maybe because it was influential you know you you see echoes of it more in later movies throughout the 80s Um, I I remember American Werewolf felt a lot more 80s to me and it might just be because it wasn't well, I mean, this one this one starts, like you said, in an urban environment. And, like, urban environments in the 70s had a very kind of particular kind of tone to them. Yeah. And, like, maybe that just set my mind there. But really, even in the rural scenes in this, uh, yeah. like, the the hunting posse that get together feels like it's it's about to go and, and hunt down a Bigfoot in an unrelated 70s Sasquatch movie. Yeah. You know, like, it just it's got that vibe to it. The whole thing does. Yeah, I'd say another thing to keep in mind is that this was the Howling was an adaptation of a book, which would yeah. have come out a number of years earlier, like literally would have come out in the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
you know, it, it kind of is tied to, to a few years backwards through being an adaptation, yeah. whereas American Werewolf in London is an original story that, that you know, was made in 1981. But so. that was written in 1969 is the thing. Oh. Landis, Landis wrote the script in the 60s. Well, yeah, it's not part of the 70s. So that's kind of, like I said, it doesn't have that 70s vibe. It's, but, it's yeah, there you go. But, so. but, but either way, you know, it's, I just feel like Landis was a more... I, I think Landis might have... Uh, he just hit on something that was more forward thinking. Do you know what I mean? And this, yeah. this oh, wasn't, definitely. um, you know, uh, so, uh, but it's interesting. They're just, they're, they're interesting contrasts. I don't think, I think the typical thing to say is like, do you prefer the howling or do you prefer America world of London? I think that that's not even necessarily something that you have to decide because there's such different movies. Yeah, you're really comparing apples to oranges there. I know they're both about werewolves, but the way they are about werewolves is extraordinarily different, and that's yeah. kind of neat. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think, and and I would say the howling is always the one that kind of stayed with me, but that's only because it had such a like profound, like I was probably traumatized by that scene where it's just like you know it was like it just you know burned itself into my memory in a way that America was in London did. The second act of this movie was your first act of your real life experience with the howling, where you were like having flashbacks. No, I wouldn't say that. I would just say well, no, it's just like when I was a kid, Don't we used to ruin have my head cannon, Brendan. <laughs> we used to have sleepovers and watch horror movies and stuff, and this was just the first one that had a scene like this that was kind of disturbing to me. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, I, I'd say, while on the topic of early disturbing movies, American Werewolf in London, to go off on that tangent a little further, yeah, I remember I couldn't have been more than 10 years old, probably even younger, I guess, but, uh, yeah, well, wait, let me think. Yeah, yeah, I probably would have nine, nine or 10. But uh, I went into a video store, and they, they were actually playing American Werewolf in London, uh, just it full of, it was basically the scene, the dream sequence with the family getting murdered. Oh my god! <laughs> I just remember out of context. I, that is yeah, just utterly out of context. Just that scene. I was just like, oh, They're like what were they like Nazi death yeah. soldiers or something in the in the dream? Yeah, yeah, kind of kick in and yeah, that was that was that was rough. That was rough for me at my, the time. My introduction to the American Werewolf in London was very gentle because. I got a um, uh, remember remember Thriller the, the 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 album but also the music video and the music video mm-hmm. I think was directed by John Landis. They, they my mom bought me a <laughs> making of Thriller videotape, like in probably eighty two or eighty three, and, uh-huh. and 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 a good portion of that was an interview with John Landis and and they were showing scenes from American Werewolf in London, and so it kind of <laughs> and so that was my first taste of American Werewolf in London. And then I saw it on video you know a few years later when I was. A little bit older but um but i already had a good idea in my head of what the movie was about and i had kind of the director's explanation of it and all that stuff and i'd seen thriller which kind of had similar scares and effect and also the the see you next wednesday inside joke so you know but uh but thriller uh, is kind of the training wheels for like really (laughs) visceral monster movies i found because i watched that when i was a kid too i watched thriller video my mom was like oh this is a great video and mtv was doing like a callback or something i was a little i was a little younger than you guys so but i did see it on mtv and uh it was a surprisingly scary video because it was just michael jackson that was back before everything came out about him and like he was as big as the whole world uh so i was like oh i like michael jackson it actually makes it more scary makes it more scary now we know we know um, it's weird that the, my amount of scared for Vincent Price and my amount of scared for Michael Jackson <laughs> completely inverted through my life. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a fair point. But but you know, that, I mean, it, I think it is a legitimately. It's a thriller. The video is good horror. I think it's it's, it's good horror. Uh, you know, at a number of different points. I, I think because you know it was it was. Uh, again, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure John Landis directed it. Um, and if he didn't, I know he was somehow involved. Uh, but, but yeah, so, you know, and it kind of encapsulates horror up to that point in history as well. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so what about uh, the werewolf lore in this movie? What did you guys think of the werewolf lore and the werewolf special effects? All right. Okay. So I think I mentioned before the podcast that my like my familiarity with this lore seemed a lot deeper uh, than I would otherwise suspect because I played a lot of werewolf when I was younger, uh, White Wolf, uh, and I've actually played both of the different famous varieties because the first one was Werewolf the Apocalypse, which was a little ungraceful but extremely fun, mm. and the second one was Werewolf of the Forsaken, which was a little overdesigned but it also extremely fun. I actually ran a year-long campaign of that for some friends who learned how much of furries they were as we were playing the game, and it made it really awkward as it went on. Uh, there, it was, that was a weird mix, by the way, because I had one guy who was not committed to the premise at all. He's like, I want to be a were-spider, and he was like the least furry guy, and everyone else was like a, like a budding furry and became furries through that game. And I was just like, I didn't want to be your gateway drug, people. I really didn't. So it was a good game. but it, And through no fault of the system or the writers of the system itself, it became a very strange game. Uh, so I've kind of walked away from it after that experience. Uh, but, I, I mean, like, it's getting back to the original point. White Wolf stole so much from this movie. Like, almost everything about the way the werewolves act and, like, the different kinds of transformations they have. Like, because I think the the classic werewolf movie is just, he's either a man or he is a wolf monster man. And in this one, you can be a man, a wolf monster man, a really tall, hairy man that looks kind of like a wolf, yeah. uh, or just a straight-up wolf. Mm -hmm. And those are the classic transformations in the were in the, the White Wolf games. And and there so, also seem to be varieties, uh, like the 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 anchor woman when she becomes a wolf at the end, she she almost looks like a, a York Yorkshire terrier. Or, she or was about she was a jellical dude. That's yeah. that was not a werewolf. That that was yeah. a were musical star. She, she was very. I, I always thought of her as like the classy and cute werewolf in the uh, in the movie. Um, were jellical. Were jellical, <laughs> but. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, mean, I think copyright, it's a, copyright me. But I think I, I mean I, I, you know, I'm not a huge White Wolf person. I have played Vampire, and I'm, I'm at least aware of White Wolf. You can't you can't help but not be. Um, but my impression is that a lot of White Wolf does seem to be drawn from the Howling series, especially as the Howling series grows and expands its universe. There's like a lot of stuff that I think must have made its way into that. Cause I, I've, I've played Werewolf all of twice i think um and that was back in the 90s so i don't have much recollection of the specifics um i remember not really liking the whole premise though i remember I've, i'm, I'm yeah. more in the camp of werewolves should be scary and the thing that you're afraid of not do you know so right uh, and yeah th that's this movie presents it this way that the werewolves are monsters but like white wolf was especially that era of white wolf and i guess forever more forward with them they really like to flip narratives yeah. so that the good guys were the werewolves but especially in werewolf like you're saying that doesn't really work because you're a horrible engine of death and terror yeah that destroys well, the whole, things 
I think I think they did put some ambiguity into the game that like the reason why we were in this bad situation is because the werewolves were overzealous and yeah you know, no in their they, they in their tasks and it's like they so it it's it, there is nuance but obviously when you're at the play table though when you're actually playing the game that's not the way things really work so you know the right. werewolves are the PCs so they're the good guys. So well, and the, the excuses they give for them are extremely yeah. weird. So and it's the, the structure of it is is flawed in a fascinating way, but it makes yeah. the at the table experience really strange because you're a good you're a, a good guy, bad guy, but the badder guys are even worser guys. But really, the reason they're bad isn't so much that they're bad, but this other thing is bad. It's well confused. Yeah, I, I'll say, I, I think I think part of the issue too is that vampire like if we're gonna go down a role-playing discussion here but uh yeah with vampire you did have like the threat of the antediluvians awakening and this stuff and the world potentially being doomed but that was all like backstory that was just like mythology you could easily ignore and you could just go about doing your political games as a vampire whereas with werewolf and with mage they created this opposition to you that you could never win <laughs> it was just yeah, always kind of it was, it was kind of was frustrating forever yeah, it's like I, okay, there's there's no game beyond fighting this battle that you're preordained to lose, and it's I, like uh, just as like an outsider who didn't get deep into those games when Vampire first came out, that concept clicked immediately. I was like, okay, I get that. Yeah, like, that works. Yeah. Vampires, you're the vampire. Uh, you know, uh, you know, there, there's a uh, you know the the Anne Rice books and everything like that. That that all. It, 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 you know, interview with the vampire and, and and stories like that made sense. There was a you know, even even Dracula to a degree kind of had a little bit of that, but I feel like uh, once you bring it over to werewolves, it's I don't know, it just doesn't quite fit my sense of uh, not that you can't have werewolves, but werewolves really are about this duality and this um, I, I don't know, I I, I, I don't well, I don't like the idea of a werewolf adventuring party. I'll put it that way. Like right, I think that, that's the what could it be. What could it be outside of the howling? You know, you have a group of werewolves who are getting together ostensibly to be monsters together. That's not a, a virtuous thing to do. And I know there's that pop psychology spin that the doctor puts on it, but even he turns out to have just been kind of playing everybody. You know. Well, let's uh, talk about that. I'm curious. Um, yeah. Because the doctor is kind of an interesting character. He he basically commits suicide at the end of the movie in a way. Um, yeah. So I never, I don't know what his game is. Like, what is he trying to, because basically it's like, okay, he's working with the TV station, which is trying to catch the serial killer. It is part of the operation to try and catch him. Who's really a werewolf who lives at the place the doctor yeah. runs, who, and then the doctor invites the anchor back to there. I'm just like, I don't know. I, I don't know what he is trying to do. Well, in this here's scene. what I think he's, he was trying to do. He's trying to recruit her into okay their community because he obviously recruits people um, yeah. and convert her into lycanthropy. But I, I think his bigger game is he's, he, he seemed to be the one that had the power over that group under this idea of, we're going to, we're going to go under the radar more. We're going to be more civilized. In yeah. Order to yeah survive. I was that. And, and there was this power struggle, I think between him and Masha, Marsha, or maybe, you know, Mar Marsha and others in the group, but Marsha was the vocal the voice of of that um and maybe you know maybe now that i'm thinking about it maybe maybe his involvement with the tv thing had to do with the fact that 
Eddie was also on that other side of the power struggle, and he was trying to rein in uh, Eddie's. That, you know, yeah, okay. Uh, that, I, I, that makes that makes something. Yeah, because the thing I was having an issue with is like, why, if you were trying to recruit her, would you have this guy who was basically terrified, making her terrified of werewolves? It, it didn't make sense. But yeah, yeah, you're right. If he's part of that other faction, that yeah. It, I mean, and I don't yeah, know. I, I'm just speculating. I, I, I'm me. just speculating. But I feel I feel yeah. like the one thing I do know about the doctor is he's basically seems to be not such a bad person. Like he 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 doesn't want to 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 kill Karen at the when when they're in the barn. He's trying to help her, and he just wants mm-hmm. to bring her into the fold. And he gets turned on by you know, and he's having them eat cattle rather than people. That's the whole point with the the cattle farming. So yeah. so he you know. Uh, and, he, and he's trying to just channel all of this violence. And it's obviously coming to a head and not working by the end of it. Um, you know, yeah, and it's interesting, too, because... character? I mean... Well, what's interesting is his whole thing is how repression is dangerous. And mm. what he's doing is he's repressing, repressing. the werewolves. So it's, Yeah, yeah. You know, well, I think that's probably what threw me off, too, is because his whole speech has nothing to do with what he's doing. Yeah. So it... I think yeah, he doesn't see it. I think he doesn't realize himself. it. Yeah. yeah. I think he's blind yeah, to the fact that he's, he's, he's repressed. Yeah, well, because he's thinking of it and he's trying to be human. Do you know what I mean? He's thinking of it in human terms. And he's yeah. he's denying, like, his werewolf side. Do you know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, well, let's, I, I guess to get to another question about the werewolves, I mean, what does becoming a werewolf mean in this? Because, you know, the, the character that, we, the, you know, the, the husband is the character we see the most as far as them going through a transformation. But once again, that character is always kind of a remove. We're never inside his head, really. Yeah. You know, and, it, and he's like this totally loyal husband. Up till that point, he gets bitten. And all of a sudden, it's like, like that just do goes. You mean, what does it mean window. in terms of your personality and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Because, I, you know, where she gets turned into a werewolf and she, it doesn't seem to have any personality effect on her at all so i'm like I, that was something another thing that i wasn't yeah. really sure about and i i feel like this is a movie that doesn't explore that psychology well like america werewolf in london definitely that's like all the movie is about and they explore that thoroughly yeah. you know what it means to be a wolf and this one it's less clear it definitely seems to have the, i mean the husband is definitely changing like we see him eating meat even when he mm-hmm. didn't eat meat before and his attitude towards his wife changes. And by the end of the movie, he's helping them to hunt them down. Granted, when he's in wolf form, so we don't know how much control he has over that state. But I... It seems like from the rest... Cause the most unbalanced character in the movie has a lot of control about where he enters that state and what he's like yeah. in that state. So I think there's a lot of control. Yeah, and, and, and even when they explain the lore, when they have, um, when they have Dick Miller in the bookshop explaining what's mm-hmm. going on with werewolves he says you know they're shapeshifters they have full control over this it's not they're not they're not it's not it's not like the, the american werewolf in london and other movies where the full moon is the thing that 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 triggers the transformation they can do it themselves so yeah they you know it seems it's so i i i'm inclined to think that they have much more control when they're a, when they're a wolf whether the husband would because he's so new to it maybe maybe he has impulses he can't control but but i feel like it it must rewire you in some way. It just seems like the husband changes enough that I get that impression. It's not as torturous and contorted as it is in so many other movies, but it does seem to be the case. Also with the, um, with the doctor character, I, my little personal backstory that I've 
kind of invented for him because he has the cane. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's got you know, and and the cane. You know, number one, I I I I, I, I like when they kind of work that into werewolf movies because of the Wolfman and the Wolfman there yeah. was the cane. Um, but also, you know, at the end of the at the end of the Wolfman, like the the main character, the 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 Lon Chaney Jr. character is the one that has the cane initially. By the end, it's the Claude Rains character, his father, and his father beats him to death, and then they and then they basically cover it up. They make it look like the the son wasn't a werewolf; he was actually trying to protect people from from a from a you know a wolf that was terrorizing the country or something. But um, but what but what if the Claude Rains character got scratched in that struggle, and the the George <laughs> Wagner character is the is the is him. In a, you know, in a new identity that he's assumed years later, uh, you know that it's totally not what they were doing, unless there's something in the books that I don't know about. But uh, I, I guarantee you, the cane was there because of the uh, movie, though. I yeah, mean, whether, it had to whether be. that the yeah. back, whether your backstory fits. There's so many, so many things in this movie yeah. that are that are just little nods to other other pop culture werewolf things. Yeah, no, they well, definitely do. something. Um... They they do the let's shoot a television playing the movie that inspired this movie a few yeah. times and actually it's yeah. kind of great. Yeah, I, yeah, I like it. It, it. it it does it in a way that's fun. It doesn't it doesn't seem obnoxious like it can sometimes in a movie. Yeah, and and that scene is the scene with Claude Rains talking to Lon Chaney Jr. Um, huh. You know, but but one additional piece of evidence that I'm pretty confident about is that the uh, I believe. Uh, George Wagner has a very similar hairstyle to Claude Rains from the, which again could just be a nod, but if I if I remember correctly, I think they had pretty similar hairstyles. Because um, one thing I remember about the Wolfman is Claude Rains was one of the few characters that didn't have like the slicked back, oily hair that every every other man had at, at that time in filmmaking. Um, so. You know, well, you know, you know, like we were saying, this, you know, the 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 decade aesthetics are are sometimes important. Um, so uh, let's see, we talked about the uh, did we talk about the special effects in relation to the werewolf changes yet? Or uh, no? We we should because there's some brilliant special effects in this, and also some questionable ones. And I think it's fun. <laughs> well, lay out the questionable ones that. first because those will be the most enjoyable to talk about. I think so. Uh, the The ones that I think are the most questionable are universally the animated ones. There's two different animated ones. There's one where they're, the wolves are moving in uh, claymation. They just they don't have actors or costumes because that would look silly. So they actually have these little models and they're yeah. doing claymation stop motion on them. And it it's if they just had people in suits, it would look stupid. And this is a this is a compromise which yeah. makes it look better than that, but still crappy. And the other one is whether the end of the scene where they're making love by firelight, it zooms out and they're in an animated silhouette yeah. and they animate them transforming and then they pan up to the moon. Uh, and it's like uh, really jarring because it's, it's the clearly animated. I actually really liked it, though. I mean, it is this really weird change, but I, I stylistically it somehow worked for me. Okay. I, I don't know okay. why, but it it I get people not liking it, but it's just like, oh, that's kind of cool. They went to animation, but it's funny. But yeah, I prefer the, the I prefer the clay animation to that one, though, for some reason. Yeah, I know. I know it was. But yeah, I mean, it was it was a deliberate choice as far as, you know, you kid on the fact that, you know, rather than having people in suits, they, they wanted to avoid people in suits because they like wanted the werewolves to be. Yeah, you know, to be yeah, different, and be anatomically the, the, different than a person. 
Yeah, so. the, the limbs of them are so long and stretched, and they're clearly like props that are being held from off camera. So it gives them this appearance of this really unusual and uncanny movement, which is really great. Yeah. Um, so those are the good special effects. The good special. I know the special effects in this are uneven, but I really enjoyed all of them just because, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I th you know, basically, you know, going back to the CGI versus practical effects thing. I mean, the thing when you're doing practical effects is every effect is kind of its own individual art project as opposed to having these kind of CGI systems you build up and, you know, but so, I mean, I kind of like the fact there's just this variety that you get yeah. because of that. It's uh, it, I, it's just interesting to me, even even if it, I get that it, some people are going to be thrown off by it. Yeah, I, I like the, the howling werewolves, especially the heads. The heads of the werewolves, I think, uh -huh. are very good in this. They get they get the they got the right look. I like you know I like my werewolves long nosed. I think that's you know just a better overall look for a werewolf than the sort of flat nose look. Except in the case of the anchor woman, because they kind of they kind of harken uh, back to that, and it may no. But here's the thing: they harken back to it, but it wasn't like they put her in Lon Chaney Jr. makeup. It, it, they it, it was still within the like mold of what they're doing with the rest of the other werewolves. Um, yeah, but uh. uh but we can we can obviously, you know, did did you guys find that choice less worked less for you than the long nose you're saying? No, or? the uh, the anchor woman because I. Uh, oh no, that... it's that's that looks weird. The whole uh, kind of cutesy werewolf she turns into. <laughs> okay. it's, uh, yeah, it, I, I, I suppose it, it was meant to elicit sympathy from yeah. us. It's yeah, that's what it was for. For sure. a little bit. Yeah, uh, that was my impression. I thought it was like a reflection of her, her like more ethical nature, maybe than the other werewolves. <laughs> maybe, uh, and okay, I, I, I could go with that. Um, there's a lot of literalizing of people's like what's inside of people in in the right transformation in this movie, and um, yeah, I, I could go with that. Again, I was so powerfully reminded of cats that I was just like, oh, no, that's not where I want to be. Okay, Although she just fair. gets shot right after that, so I was like... But that's oh, the actually, thing. That's the thing. Great. Yeah, it's... it's, it's, it's it... Well, let's talk about the last scene. Because yeah. it, it is, I think, probably one of the most impactful parts of the movie. Decisions about the werewolf makeup aside, it's, uh, you know, they, they shoot the main character in, in the very end. Which, again, that's not, not the first werewolf movie to end with the you know an infected werewolf being dispatched like that who's a main character but i i felt that the way that it was sort of selflessly done gave it a little bit more moral weight and selflessly and pointlessly as it turned out selflessly <laughs> pointlessly and in this sort of and again this will probably lead into our discussion about themes and the chaos of the themes of the movie but this whole yeah. idea of because because it's sort of framed around this TV studio it begins with a TV studio yeah. and it ends with a TV studio. So and it drops completely out of the story yeah. for most of the movie, yeah. which is, which is weird. It's like, I mean. it's like the beginning and end of video drill. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's like <laughs> so, yeah. so, uh, you know, uh, but, and also, um, what was the movie with Jim Carrey, the Truman show, the ending of this movie is a lot like the ending of the Truman show where, where, uh, where, they show people's reactions to the show ending or whatever. It, 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 so, uh, so I don't know, I guess what was your response to the final scene? Like, and just for the listeners who don't know, you know, she, she flees the, uh, the colony with, um, with one of her co-hosts, not her husband. Cause he ends up being a werewolf and presumably killed during the, I think, I think, I think actually, no, she killed him in the back of the car, right? They shot him and killed him. 
um, and 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 so they flee together, and then her and this other, uh, I don't know if he was an anchor man, but he was somebody else at the studio. They both sort of agreed to this scheme of she's going to transform into a werewolf live on camera, in, you know, in front of everybody, and then he's going to shoot her apparently, um, which is what they do. Uh, and so it's and again, I think that does wasn't there a, a, a live suicide on camera yeah. around this time yeah, as well? Um, yeah. So it you know. It see it, again. I don't know if this was before or after that, but it kind of seemed to have echoes of that event. So, um, yeah. But what was your reaction to this scene, and did you think it worked? I think it works. I mean, like it's it is a heroic sacrifice, and I think that if you'd ended just on the gunshot instead of pulling back and showing people's reaction to it, it would have been like a dark but appropriately heroic end to the character. But what I think is fascinating about it is, like you said, they linger on people's reaction. And I like the way they, they set it up because they show multiple people reacting to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, this is really entertaining because they're really desensitized to how <laughs> horrible things are on TV. And then the very, very end, one of the other werewolves who survived is like, uh, yeah, just make me a burger, make it raw. She's <laughs> yeah. in a bar, people are watching this. And the whole credits is just meat sitting there getting cooked. Yeah. And, like, there's a certain nihilism to that shot where it's like, our hero just nobly sacrificed herself. There's the meat on the griddle. You know, it's just, it, ultimately, it's just there to be consumed. Uh, so I, I liked that. I like that they have this kind of grimness and this sort of, like, nihilism to the end of the movie. It's, again, totally out of nowhere, but I like it. And it's Marsha who survives. Yeah. You know? So, so she's like, so one it's of the like worst the evil werewolves. werewolf. Yeah. Um, also, I like how the reactions are so different like some people are like oh that you know look at what they can do with special effects and then there's another person who's like no that was real she turned into a werewolf and they shot her and that guy is a hundred percent convinced that guy is fully convinced that that was real um so and and one of my problems with the series is in part two they they kind of they kind of jettison some of the 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 they don't rewrite it but they they do sort of dismiss that that point that happens at the end where clearly people saw this and clearly they were divided over whether it was real or not. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I know I, I like the final scene. I think that, uh, it's one of the things that makes the movie, it, it's weird cause it's a dark ending that sort of turns into a fun ending by the end of it. And then it has a very playful, dark joke with the hamburger meat. Just sort of, you're just sitting there like there is something weird about just sitting there being made to watch meat cook, for a whole credits roll, I, I, you I know, would like to point out she ordered that thing rare, and it's clearly. I had the same thought. I was gonna thought. say yes. Yeah. I was I, that whole credit sequence. I'm like, come on, get that thing off the grill. What you, <laughs> you're ruining let, that burger. Let it taste both sides. That might not have been her burger. Was my only redeeming moment. But I mean, like, come on, he puts it on right when she orders it. She's gonna well. Also, how many places like that have you been to where you order something a certain way and it just comes out the way they make it, no matter what? Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, getting a rare, good rare burger is a uh, is a uh, is a tricky thing. I think which is why it's so irritating seeing it in the movie because we've all had that happen to us. So. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, and also I like I like the idea of okay now now the wolf universe is going to open up around the Marsha character, which again, it doesn't in the next movie, which is a problem, <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, they go a whole other direction, but, uh, but I, I, I don't know. I, I, I like the, I like the setup at the end. I like the sense that there's, there's a bigger world that this movie is opening into. So, um, 
yeah, so it's it's I don't know, it's an interesting and again I it's it's like Adam was saying, like they do kind of jet like I mean, in bits and pieces, the TV studio is there in terms of the characters from the TV studio coming back to their rescue. But, like, it's totally absent theme-wise, unless I'm missing something. Like, the, yeah, it, it's, it's unclear. It's it's not it's not cohesive throughout the film. It's like the film is... it's It's got this whole thing going on with entertainment and news and and and, and rampant concern about serial killers and all that and then the the bulk of the movie is more about like you know the colony and sort of the all of this repressed bestial stuff that's going on so um which i guess you could tie into like the theorial the serial killer thing but um but yeah i don't know i i feel like this movie is it just feels like a like we were saying about 70s lore, it's like all that 70s stuff just put in a blender and made into a movie. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I'd say my feeling on this movie is like if there'd been like one more like careful rewrite of the screenplay, you could have had like a really amazing movie because there's like a lot of themes in this movie. They're like, oh, that's interesting. But they don't like they don't like emotionally hit you like all the yeah. time. Whereas I feel like, you know, I, I, it's a good movie. There's no question. I, I really enjoyed this movie, but I'm just like, oh, I feel like this part like, you know, like I said, with the thing with her her husband it's just like it's i don't it doesn't have any emotional weight to to it for example it's right, like we're not really... sure. we don't follow her husband emotionally is the yeah. thing like he yeah. is present but he's not something that but, we kind of step into the feet of ever yeah it's so weird well yeah, by the so... time by the time it gets to him turning like that we kind of think he's a dick and so it's like it's it's like you don't have any desire for her and him to, to be together you almost well, I, I don't want... know it, there is the scene earlier which tries to do some and he basically turns her down cold then he gets bit and then he gets seduced yeah so there there is something of like like there's something about him being kind of rewritten as a character because yeah. of the like Cockpit, the yeah you're right yeah, that's, fair. that's not consistent because the end of the movie like the girl who's gone through the most and has turned into a werewolf is just a jellical cat and she's just as heroic as she was the rest of the movie so like was he more susceptible? Was he repressing himself more? Is so supposed to read that into him because if he's a vegetarian and he's fighting his animal mm-hmm. nature harder, so we had more repressed. Like, what? What are we? Was she more I mean, animalistic then? Because I don't, I don't get that read out of her at all. Well, maybe it was the fact that he ate the meat. Maybe that actually made a difference. Maybe the fact that he gave into it, that he was seduced, and that he succumbed to it, made the difference. Um, which might have been a reflection of his, you know, character versus her character. Um, but, you know, he definitely submitted to that transformation more readily. The thing is, he never seemed tempted by meat, though. He wasn't necessarily tempted by the, the gorgeous lady. No, yeah, but once, exactly. no, no, no but I'm saying once he I'm saying once he's infected, though, then then, then he can make like th- then he's truly tempted is the then, thing. Well, then it maybe. just seems I, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's bad writing or maybe something or maybe we're missing. It, something. It is bad writing. But but like, I mean, like, but I feel like once he's bad bit, writing, we should. We should well, know that he is more strongly tempted after being bit. Well, here's we the thing: I don't think he's not tempted. I think we're misreading. I, so, so. But that's a that's a flaw in itself. It's not. I wouldn't right. say it's a misreading. I think I think they just don't give us anything. No, to they hang do. They do. Off. They do. Here's what here's what I want to oh, get. Okay. At. So so I want to okay. take us through his little story in the movie, right? He <laughs> he he first meets Marcia at the campfire when they go to the colony, right? 
and yeah. and he and and he's and he's just walking around. He's kind of and, he, and he's kind of a vanilla guy. I think everything right down to the mustache sort of makes him a typical. I don't know, just a a man who's just trying to uh, blend in uh, mm-hmm. at that at that time period. Um, and and he meets this this Marsha woman. And she, I think she's handing out the drinks or something. She gives him some punch or something. She says, it's got some good stuff in it. And and he says, oh, I'm just looking for my wife. And, and she says, why? Which is, a, I thought, yeah. one of the best lines in the movie. That's a really clever, really clever line. And then he gets this... Like, pro- I like her quite a bit. I like her yeah. performance in this movie. So and, uh, and he gets this perplexed look on his face. But then you can see he's thinking. Do you, know you can see yeah. that thoughts are going through his brain. And I think that's an important detail because if he's thinking, yeah. that means he's conflicted. He, you know, otherwise he would have just been like ah uh, and walked away, right? He doesn't. Have, but he's sitting there thinking, mulling over what to do. I think. And so, and, sure, and, and, and you could read it that I thought he was confused. What is in this punch? I, he doesn't seem bright, dude. He doesn't seem bright, but I also think he was very tempted in that moment, and he was thinking, right. "Can I get away with this? Can I not get away with this?" And then he goes off, and then. You have the scene where he brings the rabbit to Marsha. He didn't have to go in there and have her cook for. Him. He knows that she is. He's. That, that it's already been established that she's a nymphomaniac, and 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 she already came on to him once. And the brother is. When but the brother says, I don't "Know though," the thing is, he does turn her down there. It's not like he yeah. goes in there because he wants. Because he wouldn't have left if that was his really. But his he goal went in. The, but he went in there. He went in there knowing that something like. Here's what I think happened. I think he went in there and then because when they first start kissing, he reciprocates a little bit and then he backs down. So I feel like he's just conflicted about it. I don't feel like he's a hundred. If he was like, oh, I just care about my wife, he wouldn't have gone in there in the first place. And and if he you, did, you are like a bad writer's wet dream, Brendan. Like you will redeem anything no matter how poorly written and wooden I, it is. I, I, I don't like, think no, it's wait, a I found new ones enough. that doesn't exist. Yeah, here's the question, though, because, I mean, my issue with it is I don't feel anything about the husband's arc. At okay. All. And that whether whether I mean, I feel like do you, did you I mean, would you agree with that or did you? Well, no, because I had because I was noticing those reactions from him during right. the movie. Like I was like like I was feeling that he that there was a sense. Of, I just felt that it was very muted because he's such a vanilla bland kind of guy. Do you know what I mean? He's not. Yeah. He, do you know what yeah, I mean? I mean, that in itself is kind of. Well, again, I don't know. I mean, you can you know, convey vanilla. This guy, the, but I think that's what he was doing. Putting this on performance, you know, because uh, I, I don't feel like vanilla is conveyed. I just feel a lot of confusion and like there's not a lot of conveyance from his performance. I don't know if that's part I mean, of the writing or if that's just this guy sucks as an actor I mean, in that regard. I, yeah, because I, I, mean, I just feel like you know, someone that used to act, like a thing that would get hammered into us during acting classes was that, oh, well, this guy I'm playing is just a boring vanilla guy. It's like, no, that was a terrible choice. It's like, come up with something different for your character because being, okay. you know, I, I mean, you know, well, that's even if thing. you are going boring and vanilla, you can convey that in a way that isn't I, boring and vanilla, exactly. you know? Exactly. You but I think, but I think what he's supposed to be is like he's supposed to be a repressed, straight-laced person. Yeah. Who is and you can repression. convey that. But I think that was he comes across as repressed to me. Do you know what I mean? He and comes straight. across as confused to me. He's not. Okay. He's not. He's not opening up and showing me as an audience member that he is straight-laced and buttoned but down. Because he's straight-laced and repressed, he's not gonna open up and show you those. Those things are gonna be, you know. Concealed. You're making an excuse for a very, very poor 
performance, I feel. I don't, I don't think know? it, I, I think, I, I mean, again, I think it's maybe questionable the direction, but I feel like he was doing, th- there were moments where I got, okay, this guy is attracted to Marsha and he's, you know, he's going into a room that he shouldn't with her and he's clearly reciprocating a little bit. So there's something going on there. Um, I don't, I don't think it came out of the blue when he went and he had sex with Marsha. Do you know what I mean? It seemed, it seemed kind of like, okay, I get what's going on here. Um, but I, but also I am being outvoted. So maybe I'm just misreading things. I don't know. Well, you Um, you have a a somewhat endearing, but also incredibly frustrating (laughs) habit of of projecting these things into uh, an empty space. Like, oh. you, did this, you did this with Silver Rock, too, where there's not a lot going on with the performance of Silver Rock in that character. Uh, there's all going well, with You and I are just going to have to agree to disagree on there. Silver Rock but like, forever. But... <laughs> oh, I will disagree, but I will continue bringing it up, because that's kind of my bastion example of, like, we... And it might be, it might be that you and I watch movies very differently. Mm-hmm. I'm fine with that. But I feel like a lot of times where I see a void... You will see the same void, but you'll kind of project nuance into it that is utterly unwarranted. But I don't think I am here. I think I think there is a thinness to the details that they're offering. But he definitely was thinking something when she offered him the drink and said, you know, what, you know, why? When he said, I'm looking for my wife. And she said, why? There were thoughts crossing his mind. And the question is just what kind of thoughts do you think are present there? And, you know, All right. I, I will I will grant there was a moment which could be interpreted that way. Yeah. And then there was a moment when that. they first kissed where he clearly was reciprocating the kiss. Like there's no, you know, Again, he wasn't, he didn't immediately I, push I, her I away. I guess the question is, if, if so. it was done better, there wouldn't be a moment of where you just fill in what he's thinking. It would be a moment of he's clearly attracted to this woman and I'm, is saying no. I'm not I saying there like, aren't better ways to do it. I'm just saying yeah. I think that there were clues planted even if they weren't done well enough like obviously if one in three people and, and again there's there's clearly the well, possibility I, I, that i'm projecting me over but... here okay so I'll, i will say that writing wise i think the beats are there i would say performance wise he misses them there's that's where i'm yeah, gonna come it's down performance or director i'm not sure which it would be well you but... can't tell it's impossible yeah. it's one of those yeah. things unless you're on the set it's like there are many people that are good actors that get terrible direction Cause, and because i feel like he did get the repressed straight lace guy thing down you know what i mean like yeah, I that was clearly there is conveyed, some, there is but... something to that i'll grant that but like there's Honestly, not enough of I, it yeah i mean if it's direction i'd imagine it's direction more in the uh, in the direction of not giving enough help versus giving bad advice because i don't feel like joe dante is the kind of director is going to play this as flat as you possibly can because that that is just not 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 a joe dante kind of style he may not be an actor's director a lot of the performances in here that are really good are because of the actor in the role who do you you think think were the character actors and puts them in these parts and they just boom they just go who were the good performances in your mind almost every other like almost every (laughs) other performance was fantastic in this movie like right down to slim pickens who was a delight slim pickens Um, was great and he would have been great no matter what um right but no matter what you get the right actor and you just let him go and there you go but the, yeah, and I mean, you've got like you know, you've got Kevin McCarthy at the uh, at the TV station. He's another he's person. Very, he was just... very good, and it was like a very it was specific to him almost. Like that's like I feel like I've seen him in that role eight times, and you know, yeah. growing up. Um, but that that <laughs> well, worked because it was totally it believable. Every time. Yeah, and and I especially when they did the editorial when it, when they put his editorial up on the thing, and it, and he's talking about <laughs> crime and all that stuff. Doing that that 
that was the uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you you want you want to do movie crossovers. You've got your one back to the Wolf Man. It's like he's the same guy who owns the TV station in UHF. That's right. I mean. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And if they, if if they're the same people, that would make this even better. His so, so his tragic backstory man. is the Wolf thing that happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Wolf Man and UHF are part of the same cinematic universe. So that's. <laughs> That 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 that's something that we should explore more deeply. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I thought the woman who played Karen White was good. I thought that she worked really well yeah. in that role. B. Wallace. Uh, yeah, yeah, she's good. Um, I liked. Uh, I, I, I who? Uh, what is it? Patrick McNee. Patrick is that his name? McNee. Yeah, yeah, he was in the uh, that British show, The Avengers, the uh, famous uh, famous show. Okay, which I have not seen, but um, oh, okay. I've never seen The Avengers. But uh, but I thought he was really good. Again, he had kind of a, to me he had like a Doctor Loomis type vibe, especially with the eyes. Something about the eyes uh-huh. were a little bit similar. Um, and uh, and and of, and of course, like Joel said, Slim Pickens was good. I also liked Robert Picardo as uh, uh, Eddie. Um, yeah. Which you know, yeah. I I only recognize him from what was he in Deep Space Nine? Was that the show that he was in? Yeah, he was the the holographic yeah. doctor or whatever. Oh, well, uh, that's why I saw that guy again. Yeah. Okay, yeah, he's got very different face. He's got substantially um, more hair here, so it really makes a difference. <laughs> um, well, on the little IMDb page of this movie, like he's super bald, and I'm like, this is the same dude, really? And I was like, I know this face though. <laughs> um, but no, he he does a great job of being. It, like making you uncomfortable because of how unhinged and unpredictable he is yeah. as a person. Like that's mm-hmm. like his conveyance. And that is really good. And he doesn't like, aside from being a werewolf until the end where he violently like chokes and rips apart the lady. Uh, he doesn't actually do anything super scary. He's just, it's, it's just him. That's just how he is. His personality is upsetting. Well, I so. think it's interesting too, that it's like scary when you realize he's not just a serial killer, that he's a werewolf that like that, that, transition of his character is legitimately scary in the film um because you know he's the thing that sort of causes all our trauma at the start and the comforting notion is well at least it was just a serial killer who's dead now do you know what i mean and and then the body ends up disappearing and you know so it really creates a sense of unease once that happens um uh, yeah uh, yeah, I, uh, I was thinking of Nightbreed actually when we had the scene in the morgue with the body missing. I, I, I oh, that's right. It. Yeah, it does have that kind of a feel. <laughs> Which is a later movie, of course. Yeah. Um, I, I, and this one I thought was really well done too, with like the the scratch marks on the inside of the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I forget what the name of the whatever the whatever they put the dead bodies into. Um, yeah. But of course, it, yeah, because in both movies you have characters that one is a serial killer and the other one's an accused serial killer. So yeah. you have to wonder if any of this was rolling around in Clive Barker's head. Yeah. But, uh, that's that's a good that's a good point. And and of course, um, uh, Cronenberg is in that movie too. So there's the you know another yeah. Movie, you know also if you get bitten in this movie you become a monster and it's kind of the same thing with uh, Nightbreed. That's true. That's yeah. true. Yep. <laughs> Um, a, lot of, a lot of DNA of the Wolfen and Nightbreed. I, I like how they brought that in with the Gypsy Woman from the Wolfman too, where that's where that was explained. Like sometimes that's really, it's really chintzy to, to use the old movie that this movie is based on. Is the but I thought they chose really good scenes to to you know like it could have just been random scenes of a guy running under the moon and turning and you know what I mean. But it it yeah. it, it, it worked out well. And there's that line about you know whoever's like scratched or bitten by a werewolf and does not die becomes a werewolf you know i, I liked that 
Um, so, so I liked uh, overall. I liked the, uh, you know, the the way that they incorporated the the old uh, the old Wolfman movie into it. Um, I also like that they knew when to cleave to the lore and when to be really clear about diverging from it. Because like, oh, who's the guy? Does the bookstore? That guy isn't a lot of stuff. Dick Miller. Like Dick actor. Miller was. Yeah, the yeah. Guy Dick, Dick Miller. Uh, we were talking about him before the the podcast too. I loved his performance in this. Again, great performance. But he just straight up just almost turns like he's like right near the camera and he's like, yeah, no, they can just transform whenever. It's not the moon. <laughs> and that's it. That's the scene. It's great. <laughs> Dick... Uh, they also introduced the silver bullets. Like, oh, I've got a bunch of silver bullets here. Yeah, someone ordered them. Do you want to buy them? Like, <laughs> I know. Thank you, Exposition Man. <laughs> Dick Miller has, like, a really high level of just likableness that is not, like, I don't know what it is because it's, it's, it's perplexing, actually. But, like, no matter what role he's in, you know, no matter how drunk he is or how, you know, like, whatever they have him doing, he's likable. Yeah, well, he's got that vaguely cranky air, but at the same time, you like him. It's yeah. just this edge to him. It doesn't it doesn't put you off. It just makes him more entertaining. <laughs> and, and in this one, he's kind of almost like a con man because his whole thing is like, yeah. he, you know, he, he knows all the lore and he talks like he believes in it. But then when he's asked, he's just like, no, I'm making a buck here. Like, give me a break. So, you know, <laughs> he's kind of got like a, you know, like a, you know, he's a slick businessman in this movie. And, uh. Um, I also liked in his shop the placement of the silver bullets. Um, number one, because I, I like that he's like, ah, here's like a here's the silver bullets that are going to be important later in the movie. But but number two, Jack-off's bullets. Well, but but also I like that there's like a backstory to those bullets that's intriguing because he mentions that some crazy person bought them and never picked them up, and so. So I started thinking about it. I'm like, well, that means that there must have been somebody else out there. Either it was like just a, you know, a, a prank or it was somebody who was dealing with werewolves and didn't survive to come get the bullets. <laughs> I didn't think about yeah. that. that. I like yeah. that a lot. That's a nice yeah. touch. But uh, but yes, there's and there's a lot of little things that the movie does in that way that I think are nice touches. Um, there's like a lot of little hints that are dropped about the fact that they're at it, like that these are werewolves at the colony. So like when she meets that lady who's like really soft spoken, who befriends her, the woman who you would never think is actually a werewolf there. The, um, <laughs> I can't remember her character's name, but she talks about how she's been going through therapy for years and she's tried every form of different, you know, and then she lists off a bunch of different therapies and, and she says, you know, and I, and I feel like I'll eventually be human by the end of the process. You know, they're like lines <laughs> like that that just kind of, you know, point at what's going on. There's the the old dog that's trying to throw himself in the fire, the old man who doesn't want to live anymore. And, you know, like once you know that fire is, you know, a sure way to kill them, that scene becomes more of a an omen of what's to come. Uh, and I also like that scene because he's acting like an old dog leading up to the moment when he throw, wants to throw himself into the flames. Um and I like the idea of like an old werewolf whose teeth aren't really working anymore. And he's, you know, just, he just can't quite like he's, he's like lost his mojo basically as a werewolf. Uh, I, I thought that was kind of a cool concept. Um, yeah, we do get a variety of different like kinds of werewolf here. And that's sort of unusual. Uh, even modern werewolf movies will very commonly only have one or two werewolves in them at most. And this is like a bunch of very different people yeah. who are werewolves. Yeah, they all have strikingly different perso- personalities. I mean, you have to contend with the idea that Slim Pickens is a werewolf in this one. Do you know what I mean? Like, sure. You know, uh, like <laughs> what kind of werewolf would Slim Pickens be? You find out in this movie. 
Um, you know, and, he, and he's still slim pickings. He's still as, you know, still as charming <laughs> and quirky. He's a avuncular werewolf. Yeah. There, now I get to say it. <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah, I, uh, it, it's a, it, it is an interesting blend. Um, and I think, the, but the two most menacing ones, or I should say the three, but the two in terms of, uh, you know, at the colony that you deal with for the most part are, uh, uh, Marsha and her brother. I can't remember her brother's name. Um, uh, the other quist, the, the, the one, the one that looks, he's got like the, the fur on his chest and he, mm. he looks like a, he looks like a really, like a, like a slack jawed Alice Cooper with yeah greasy hair. Yeah. Slack jawed Alice Cooper is a really good description of this guy. <laughs> yeah. And again, he has that kind of like, He's got a very deliverance vibe. Let's let's yeah let's call yeah it what it is yeah yeah he's got a deliverance vibe <laughs> for sure. Uh, yeah, like you know, he says what is it? He says you know you know Marcia sure loves to cook, and he means something totally different when he says it. You know that kind yep. of a thing. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, but he but but what's interesting about that guy is he's like a, um, I don't know he he's he's got the deliverance vibe, and when you first see him, you think he's going to be like a real like like neanderthal but he actually you know is kind of charming when he's talking to the husband do you know what i mean he's kind of like a you know he's deal. he's got a full deck and you don't expect him to have a full deck that's, that's yeah yes i agree because he really he really comes off as a guy that's missing a couple of bricks but no yeah. he's pretty sharp and he's all these surprisingly likable and charming werewolves it's really <laughs> weird there's only one that's a creepy psycho I would say I would say too. I would say that Marsh is also a creepy psycho. She's um, a different kind of charming, but yeah, she's also sort of a creepy psycho. Because she just Maybe wants to a... like, she just wants to kill. Like she wants to. She she's fed up with the program that the she doctor wants to is... kill and mate. She wants yeah. two things. She's nuanced. I have a type, Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> you just gotta forgive my type. But uh, um... my story about the furries game is getting more and more like more pieces are falling into place for our audience. They're like, oh. I have so many questions, but I won't ask them until the end of the uh, <laughs> end of the podcast. Well, my um, reputation appreciates that discretion. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so so I don't know. Is there anything that we missed about this movie? We've actually gone over an hour. Um, yeah, I think that yeah. we're approaching the runtime of the movie and talking about the movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the only other observation I made watching this movie, the soundtrack is fairly conventional. Every now and there's like a weird flourish I, to it. And I, I was and and the thing I I thought. This isn't an Italian composer. I, I mean, this movie is done. I am going to check, but I bet this is an Italian. And yep, are it you, was an Italian Okay, composer. I have to. Are you insulting like all Italian composers with that? Statement? I was complimenting. Oh, okay, okay. No, I'm a big fan of, of you know Morricone because I have because like I have issues with this soundtrack actually. Do you? Yes, Do I have you? big issues with this soundtrack. So in places, I think it works. But there are some moments in this movie, and a lot of it is in the mixing. Like the soundtrack is not brought to the appropriate volume level or something. Uh -huh. It's not in, like you know, like the, the a good soundtrack feels like it's adhered to the cellular, like the 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 the, the it feels like it's part of the movie. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, like, yeah. There it, were there were moments where it was in this one where it was a little. It's like drifting, and it's off somewhere where the movie. <laughs> so there's a scene where. There's this yeah. really obnoxious use of pipe organ keyboard that's kind yes. of comedic and it's kind of circusy, but the volume is way too low and the scene is funny, but not that funny that you should be doing the circus music. And 
that scene to me is like the most atrocious soundtrack music I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> and I know he must have been going for something else, but it just never yeah. landed with me. That no, it's it's awful. And and also there's there's no with the exception of like one scene, there's no memorable melody in the soundtrack. I can never and and not in like a Sondheim way, not in like a oh why can't I remember that enchanting melody that I heard and hum it afterwards? It's it's like a I can't I can't remember any of the any of the melodic lines in the movie and that frustrates me. And I know part of it is because he's doing like a kind of like an atonal thing at various points to heighten tension. But even movies yeah. that do that, I feel they should have a theme that I can recognize. And I've never. It's probably in there, but I've never been able to recognize the theme to the howling. Um, yeah, you might be on to something there. Because, I mean, when I looked up the, the, the composer, I liked a lot of the soundtracks he's done, but they're not something that leaped out at me, which can be considered good or bad. Yeah, because obviously. Because, yeah. like, you know, like he did, he did, he's done like pretty much all the De Palma films, and those have great soundtracks that really engage me but i yeah. i can't think of a i can't think of a melody to any of them off the top of my head he didn't so, do yeah, our face i think he? that he, what he's doing there and i i kind of like that better than the the uh, john williams version where it kind of eats <laughs> the movie like i found that obnoxious it's... i hate john williams themes uh, I, I maybe that's just a, a shortcoming of mine, but I've always found his stuff to be like blaring and it just kind of gobbles the movie and it's like look at me pay attention to me this it's mm -hmm. like you're saying, it's like in the DePaul movies, it's in service to the scenes. And so yeah. it's, it's, yeah, it has. Except that uh, one scene, that one scene I mentioned, it's definitely not servicing the which, scene. Which scene is that? I don't remember that. The I, hunting scene, the hunting scene. There's this goofy pipe organ music that's played at a very low volume and it's maddening. Oh, it's just, okay. it's, it's, it's that, very... that may have been the moment where I, where I, I, I started thinking about it actually. Mm. I think that was the moment where I'm like, hmm, because it, it's just, uh, yeah, no, it just it just it's a, just the whole overall thing. Like I said, it's not not an insult to Italian composers by any means, but they're just it just felt like that to me. Like, but the thing is, then now, you think of someone like Ennio Morricone, and he comes up with these mel melodies that you remember. Do you he does, mean? but he does a lot of weird, weird soundtracks yeah, too. He, he does to get off the beaten track. No, he That's does. He does. Yeah. But I mean, you know, and again, he did he did a werewolf movie. He did Wolf, and that that's very strange soundtrack. Uh, I like it, but mm -hmm. it's 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 definitely more in the realm of this kind of soundtrack than, you know, um, uh, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, or something. But uh, yeah, yeah. But um, and he did the, he did Hamlet with Mel Gibson too. I uh, I don't know. If, you know. I've never seen that actually. Oh, so. you have the music to that's not bad. I actually one of the one of the tracks off of that soundtrack was. To me, was so good. I actually bothered to learn it on guitar, uh, okay, but nice. uh, but uh, but yeah, I, I think it's the 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 Morricone music is probably the best thing about the Mel Gibson Hamlet, in my opinion. Uh -huh. um, yeah, I was never particularly interested in it. I don't I don't remember why. It's, it's but, not bad. It's not bad. I mean, it's, I, I like Shakespeare, but for some reason, I was just never like no. It was well, you know what it was when I was in high school. That was the version that they tended to. They showed us either that one or the. The one from the early '70s, the one that everybody okay. knows. Okay. Yeah, um, we we did Romeo and Juliet and Macbeth, so we never needed a, a Hamlet. Okay. Yeah, we did Romeo and Juliet too. I don't think we ever did Macbeth though. Um, That's true. Yeah. I remember does Merchant of Venice? You notice that? I'm it's always like Romeo and Juliet. And I would rather see either Midsummer Night's Dream, or I'd rather see The Tempest even than Romeo and Juliet. I got to see The Tempest. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. Uh, on Juliet. stage, it was really something. It's a little mm -hmm. more lighthearted, but like Merchant of Venice has got a great structure. Um, 
I don't know. I don't feel like we're talking about uh, the howling anymore so much. It's okay. It's okay. We can deviate. <laughs> we can go. It's a con- this is long form conversation. Once you go over an hour, you have room to breathe, and I think <laughs> it's fair. Once you go over an hour, you have to do a second one. That's yeah. the rule. <laughs> so. We're deep in the woods now, folks. The no, it's just that it's it's a, it's it's a conversation. These kind of discussions are like we're at a coffee table talking about a movie that we just saw, and it's going to lead yeah. into places yeah. that are. Uh, you know, if it leads into Macbeth, it leads into Macbeth. So I think, and also it was it was a fair detour because we were talking about Ennio Morricone, and you know that. No, that no, was, I, yeah. I mean, I followed the chain of the conversation. I just I wanted to uh, to point out because we already strayed into role playing game territory, and now we're going into Shakespeare territory. Okay. It's fascinating. But, it's fascinating to me that we to, to, to return to Adam's point, I'll say something about the soundtrack has never set right with me even some of the stuff that was effective like some of the pipe organ that's more menacing and may this probably was intentional but it just feels like really corny old horror movie music and mm. I, I i think i think that was intentional though yeah I yeah I, I doubt i doubt that it was unintentional but i mean really like i said the other the reason why i think it worked for me is this is a joe dante film yeah and there's just this level of humor to joe dante's stuff that i just went in there but, prepared for but contrast I mean, that with Gremlins and the theme music to Gremlins. Oh, and how, yeah. And that's, how spectacular that is, that is. Yeah. That is classic yeah. music, no question. I don't know who that, did that, actually. I got to look um, Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. But that, well, that to me, is I what the howling could have been as good as Gremlins in terms of music. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe in 1981 we weren't ready for a Gremlins-like <laughs> soundtrack. I don't know. But I, I, I feel like I well, feel I mean, like oh go ahead. Well, I was thinking about as far as like really good horror soundtracks, the ones that always pop out to me are Halloween and The Exorcist as the ones that like have like an iconic and memorable and effective like soundtrack. And those were weren't those like eighties like early eighties? Well, Halloween I think was seventy eight or seventy nine. I forget the yeah, exact. So date. there you go. Um, I think was but that was that also an unusual thing because John Carpenter wrote that theme himself. I think he got some <clears> help <throat> from um, a music professor because he's not a trained composer well, or anything. It, like, but... it's so weird because John Carpenter, in terms of like movie soundtracks, like he's just really he he's used it like wallpaper. You know, yeah. he's not yeah. known for his iconic, and yet in that one, it's like this perfectly iconic well, sound. Well, what works is the simplicity because it's like what da, 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 da. it's it's like. It's, just a few notes. Do you know what I mean? It's not, and, and, and then, and then it just keeps changing key basically. So, mm. um, but it's yeah. just, he just picked really on, on point, you know, uh, notes and the rhythm to it that just work. I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think the stripped down simplicity of it is why it's so effective. What were we? Oh, I was just going to say the gremlins, uh, gremlins soundtrack is Jerry Goldsmith. Okay. So, okay. There you go. You know, for me, the um, my favorite soundtrack is actually the '92 Dracula soundtrack. I think that one is uh, one of the best. Oh, yeah. um, but uh, <laughs> it's a really good one in terms of horror movies. In terms of and and I and I quite like the Hellraiser soundtrack. I think that one. I yeah, uh, I own yeah. that yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I used to own it on tape. I had a little cassette tape of it, but I've since lost. <laughs> yeah. It. And also yeah. the you actually, uh, actually folded it into a puzzle box and it vanished. The uh, the opening theme, even though the movie's kind of a mess, the opening theme to the um, Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein is kind of cool. The uh, the Patrick Doyle music is pretty good to that. that. Um, 
It's been a long time. We need to watch that one for Schlotchover, too. It'd, it'd be a good counterpoint to The Bride of Frankenstein. Which I have to good. really build up stamina to watch that one. That's my only problem. <sighs> yeah, no, we're... Yeah, we're I, I remember being underwhelmed with that the first time I saw well, it. So I there was just nothing about it that really stuck with me that I liked. But uh, also, uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street has some iconic music, I would say. Um, and uh, Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, no, the, 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 we'll... we'll we will probably have to talk about that one. I'd rather do Dracula first before we do Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein because Dracula, I'm excited to watch the the '92 Dracula. But oh yeah, the, the... I almost feel like we need to do a Dante's Inferno where we watch the Frankenstein one first to go all the way to the depths of hell <laughs> and then we climb back out with Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Can, uh, we'll we'll figure it out. We'll figure yeah. out a way. Yeah, that's um, it's 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 been a while since I've seen that one. But yeah, I, but I, again, I don't think that the soundtracks, you know, I feel like I don't want to attack the composer because I do feel like he was making choices that were deliberate and he knew what he was doing. I just feel like I disagree with some of those choices. As yeah, a well, once again, too, he is hired help on a movie, too. Like I said, he's done great soundtracks. So, I mean, whatever your reservations are, it's like, I, you know, was it was it that that may have been what he was asked to do. So, um, but. I will say I love the. Uh, I don't know if if you said he did this soundtrack, but I did love the Scarface soundtrack. I thought that was uh, that the was Scarface soundtrack. Yeah. yeah, he. I think he did the Scarface. Yeah, that I thought was great. Yeah, because it has yeah. that that theme that you remember. Do you know what I mean? That that really emotive theme that you remember. And I feel yeah. like in this movie, I was having a hard time connecting emotionally to the music. Um, yeah, and, there's a hard time connecting emotionally this movie in general terms. Yeah, it's not just the music, but it is in the music. It's music. There's certain performances you have trouble connecting with. I was uh, there's a oh, there's a disassociation with it. It's interesting. Well, you're highlighting something that was kind of a structural problem with the movie, which is we do feel sort of emotionally disassociated from what's going on. Uh, the the most effective parts for getting under your skin attack you more as a member of the audience than it does like as someone okay. who's engaging with the characters and the, the situations emotionally. That's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm curious about that. I have to think about it. I feel like there were parts where I was definitely emotionally invested, but there were scenes where I certainly wasn't. Um, I, I think another point about the, about the use of that comedic music in that scene, I, I, I feel like music is very good at making you sad, at making you afraid, at making you like maybe even happy, but I don't feel like it's good at making you laugh. Unless it's doing nope. something like unexpected, like making a trumpet noise that sounds like a fart. Do you know what I mean? Like, if, like if there's some, like there's some commentary on what's going on on the screen in that way. But if it's just bouncy, funny music, I don't, you know, it's not yeah, going to generate the, laughter. The um, calliope music does not actually make you laugh. It just yeah. sets a tone in which laughter is encouraged. And like, yeah. I don't think that it even does that effectively. It's just discordant, and it, it, I don't know. Well, it makes me I uncomfortable, because then I'm suddenly like, why am I not laughing at this scene? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's a... Yeah, uh, it's the clown yeah. makeup of music. It's like, I'm not, this isn't going to make me laugh, guy. You've got to do something a little more. And you're right, music can make you laugh if it's wildly inappropriate to the scene. Like, someone really stupid having heroic music play, that's that's comedy gold. Sorry about that, guys. It's, it's fine. I like, But, like... Yeah, you can't just do like ho ho the music's goofy doot, 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 and have something goofy happening and that that doesn't work. For some yeah. reason there's not a comedic contrast, you know. But yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I just just an observation I made based on the composer is that you know, as we're talking about the Palma films, Blowout, which is also a notable movie 
where there's suspense around someone going to meet a killer while kind of under surveillance and then losing contact with her. That's like a major theme in Blowout. And I was like, wow, I wonder if this was influenced by Blowout. But Blowout is also 1981. So they okay. had kind of the exact same <laughs> plot thread going on in a movie the same year. So that's, I mean, uh, I mean, again, though, there was a lot of stuff in here that was an American werewolf in London. So... Yeah, you know, oh, there are quite a We have someone working on both movies too. The yeah. composer was doing the music for both, but uh, it's just <laughs> just ideas that are in the uh, in the air. So I guess um, I guess here's where we should depart because we're now almost at an hour and thirty minutes. Um, yeah, so, and we've yeah. had a whole conversation about music. For uh, all the evils this movie has done, we have driven one stake into its heart. That's great. So, uh, shot one silver bullet into its mangy hide. So, um, so yeah, so I get, I guess we'll leave and, uh, we, I, I will say this, it was a struggle for us to pick a werewolf movie for Halloween. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, should we have done the original Wolfman? Should we have done America werewolf in London? Should we have done, you know, what was, I think the movie that, uh, had maybe been mentioned as well was ginger snaps there, you know, there, there are a number of other movies that, uh, were contenders and, and so we settled on this one. Um, I feel like this is a good, solid werewolf movie. Um, I don't know if you yeah. guys feel the same way. Um, not every werewolf movie it's, is a good, solid werewolf movie. Well, so. it's it's weird. It, it is, like I said, it's, it's, it's shaky in lots of ways. So I don't know if solid is the word I would use, but it works. It just well, somehow works despite its strange, rickety structure. Let me, let me clarify. Point. When I say solid werewolf movie, I don't mean solid movie that features werewolves. <laughs> I mean a solid werewolf movie in that right. it has ferocious werewolves werewolf. that you're afraid of Precisely. that do all the things that werewolves are supposed to do in a movie. It's not right. it's not like Wolf, the movie from with Jack Nicholson, yeah. which is uh, a solid movie but not a solid werewolf movie. Um, yeah. well, I feel like maybe the ricketiness of the rest of the theming works to the advantage of how solidly the werewolves are portrayed. You know, because this movie is about werewolves. That's what it's really about. And yeah, it says a few things like, you know, out of the side of its mouth, it'll be like, ah, you're a social repression, blah, blah, desensitized to violence. But at the end of the day, this is a movie where werewolves do werewolf stuff. And it's great for that. (laughs) And, and, and and if you, and and in my personal vote, actually for best werewolf movie would have to go to dog soldiers. That I think was the best werewolf movie. In terms a surprisingly of, good werewolf movie. Yeah, yeah. I agree. It's in terms of solid werewolf movies. Uh, you know, you know. Yeah, and, um, yeah. That's that's a fair contender, definitely. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So uh, and and any additional because again, this this comes out. Do you guys have any thoughts on how this compares to American Werewolf in London? You know, if it's you know better or worse or different or. Uh, I, I think that your observation is a good one. I think this is a movie from the seventies and has still has the residual kind of like culture of the seventies that informs it. And American werewolf is that cutoff point where we yeah. begin on our long odyssey through the Reagan years. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I haven't seen American werewolf in London in a long time, so I feel weird doing a comparison versus yeah, that's comparison fair. here, but they're uh no, I, I think they're I think they're both worth watching in their own way. I mean, I, probably American World for London is a little more polished. I would say. I would say definitely. I would say. I yeah, I yeah. Know. I would it's say. A, I'm qualifying. If, think that it doesn't yeah. need to be qualified. It is. It is a more. It's a better polished. movie. It's a better it a movie objectively. Movie. Um, yeah. But I think in terms of the subjective things, 
some people might get more bored watching American Werewolf in London than with this movie. Vice versa, too. But I feel like well, there's more potential for that with American Werewolf yeah. in London. And I'll, this, this one, though, is a little more thought-provoking. I think we've been able to talk about it so long because it does bring up all these themes, even if it doesn't resolve a theme well or like the yeah. stuff like the TV station being abandoned for the movie. It makes you think about these things, even if it doesn't entirely deliver them. So it kind of it kind of got my mind going, which is, you know, always a good thing in a movie. Yeah. So so I guess we'll we'll end it there and we'll be back on. We don't know what movie we're doing next, do we? Have we decided that or is that still up? I do not know. If you decided you've kept it a secret. Um, So, well, you know, we'll decide as a group. I don't want to be the only one that decides. But uh, (laughs) but uh but so we'll be back with another movie. We're going to, depending on people's schedule, we are trying to cram a few more in than we normally do just to get a lot of Halloween movies in, but we'll see if that's feasible or not. And, uh, and yeah, until next time, we will talk to you later.